morning. You want to open to Nehemiah chapter 10. So let's read, uh, go back one verse from Nehemiah 10.1 and let's read 9.38 because it kind of, chapter kind of cuts off in a strange spot. So 9.38, the last verse in chapter 9. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 10, chapter 10, verse 1. And on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And then, I'm going to spare you reading all these names here, and jump down to verse 28. So, there's the list of names there. Some of them have come up before. Um, now jumping to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have spared themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God. According to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests. To the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from, from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of, of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Well, here we are getting close to the end. I think we've got this week and then two more weeks of Nehemiah. We're going to do 11 and 12 together and then 13. Now, before I kind of get into this, I do want to 
point something out that I thought about reading 10 and 13 together um, because they're really connected. And it seems like either 10 where they agree, like we're going to do, we're going to obey God and here's what we're going to do. Either chapter 13 is written in hindsight and then chapter 10 is exactly what they said they're going to do. Like here's the exact list of what we said we would do. And then chapter 13 is looking back because they end up breaking basically all of it. Or chapter 10 maybe is a summary of a larger thing that they agree to do. And chapter thir- and the reason is they're kind of highlighting all the things they're going to break in chapter 13. It seems one way or the other. But they're really closely related because it basically goes through all these things, even to the point where it's talking about where they're going to take. Some of it's strangely specific, like where we're going to take these specific ties of the ties and and we're going to put them in the house of God. Well, it seems like that might be related to, in chapter 13, they clear out a room and a guy starts living in it. And so, at least it makes sense on why they include some very specific details and in others it's like this real broad. Um, so one, one way or the other, chapter 10 or 13, whether it's in hindsight uh, or vice versa, um, is closely related to chapter 13 where they basically end up breaking all these things that they're about to commit to do and promising. And so 10 and 13, we're going to talk about kind of as a unit. And but today we'll focus on the commitment part, and then eventually we'll get to how they broke their commitment totally, basically. And then, so that's the first thing I want to say. So this is going to be kind of a list of just short, like, asides that come up about this chapter, and then we'll get into kind of the main points. One other aside here that's in the chapter, but I think it's good to, just hit, and because people have questions about it, is one of the things it talks about is not taking daughters, not taking their daughters, basically not intermarrying with the people of the land. And so, you know, of course, historically people have used this to say, like, no interracial marriage and things like that. And so I just thought I would address that. So, um, and so what it's actually saying is more, is it, it, what it's actually saying is all about marrying an unbeliever. It's not about race. And one of the reasons we know that is there's a whole book in the Bible about somebody marrying a non-Israelite, and it's all real positive, and it's the book of Ruth. And so Boaz marries a Moabite, Ruth, and it's positive. And the reason is she's trusting the Lord. And there's a lot of other examples of this. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but a lot of people think that Moses' wife was actually black because it calls her a Cushite, which just means basically, literally, she's black or her ancestors were black. And so there's tons of um, examples like this in the Old Testament of people um, marrying, and it's not a big deal. The main point is you don't want to bring in idolatry into your marriage. You don't want to marry an unbeliever. And that's real clear in different places. Even in Nehemiah 13, it specifically says why. And why don't we just turn over there, just jump one chapter to Nehemiah 13, 26 and 27. And this is Solomon, which is a negative example. And and just notice why it says it's negative that he's marrying these foreign women, okay? Uh, Nehemiah 13, 26 and 27. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. 
Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So notice why it says it was not good that Solomon married these foreign women. It's because it ended up pulling him into idolatry. And he allowed these women that he married who didn't believe in God to worship these idols and ended up drawing him into sin. And in 13, which, again, the point there is that they marry these foreign women and their children don't even know Hebrew, so they can't even hear the scriptures um, because they only speak the other language. So it just really highlights the idea that the point of this is it says basically nothing about race. It's all specifically about idolatry. And the verses that you know might be a New Testament parallel are the verses about marrying a believer and um, things like that. So I just wanted to hit that because it's in here, and you may have some point have to address it, and somebody might ask you about it. But it's one of those things where you pick out one verse, and you can take it out of context and make it sound like it's saying something totally different than what it's saying. Um, just even knowing, you know, for your toolkit, if somebody ever asks you about this, just that there's a whole book that's positive on it, the book of Ruth. That's a pretty clear um, example. Uh, a couple others are just in Jesus' genealogy. There's, um, you know, um, other examples of non-Jewish ancestors of Jesus. Um, so, and I'm blanking on... Uh, the name Rahab. Rahab, yeah, Rahab. And Ruth, both, yeah. So I just thought I would hit that while we're here. And that's kind of, an, it's in the chapter, but it's kind of an aside from my main point. But I just thought we would hit it. Okay, so now that we kind of got that, those first two things out of the way, let's just talk about the big picture and kind of the main points that I want to bring out from this chapter. So what's really going on is there making a public declaration of repentance. They're saying, we were not following God's law, and we were going our own way, but now we want to obey God, and we want to walk with God, and we're committing to follow God, and they're, they're making that publicly. And so, the, the question for us is, how do we you know, apply this to our own lives? You know, how does this relate to us? Because we could talk a lot about the details, but ultimately we want to bring it, understand what's going on and then apply it to our own lives. And the New Testament and the Old Testament are different. Okay. And so I think what I'm going to do to kind of help us to apply this is we're going to have pretty much first have to talk about the differences between the new and the old Testament and the new covenant and the old covenant. So that way we know how does this apply to us and what doesn't apply to us. There's some things that stick out that obviously strike our ears is strange, you know, um, Example, them saying that they're calling a curse on themselves. So, very different. Not something that we do regularly here on Sundays, except I don't think we've ever, I don't think, I'm pretty confident we can say we've never called a curse on ourselves um, publicly like they did. <laughs> it's kind of strange. But there's a, whole, there's a reason for that, and that it's rooted in the Old Testament. So let's talk about the difference between the New and the Old Testament here to start. This is kind of an overview, but then we'll specifically apply it here to Nehemiah 10. Okay, the New and the Old, Old Testament. First, um, let's look at that verse, that specific verse, 1029. Nehemiah 1029. 
So they're committing here to do, basically, the summary could be, we're going to follow what God said in his law. Um, and this is what it says. They're joining with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Well, the reason that it says it this way, specifically, a curse and an oath, is this is kind of the way the Old Testament was set up. The Old Covenant was set up, was that it was based on them obeying the law. And God specifically says, you know, I'm setting out for you the blessings here of obeying my law and the curses if you don't. This is what's going to happen. And, you know, there's even whole chapters, you know, where there's just a list of curses. Deuteronomy 28 is basically 68 verses of the bad things that will happen if they don't obey the law. Kind of um, just highlights the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't have any chapters in the New Testament where somebody makes a commitment and then there's a real long chapter about all the curses that are going to come upon you. Um, so I think the best way to summarize this difference is I'll summarize it in my own words and then we'll look at some of the verses. So the Old Testament was based on works and they were supposed to follow the law. And if they did, they would be received. And if they didn't, they would be rejected. Um, and the blessings and the curse are all spelled out. The New Testament is a totally, the New Covenant is a totally different kind of, of law, and it's by faith. And there's hints of it in the Old Testament, so I'm kind of simplifying. When I'm talking about the Old Covenant. I'm talking about Moses, the law of Moses. So I'm not talking about Abraham um, and his covenant or Noah or anything like that. Um, I'm talking about the law of Moses. So the New Testament is by faith, and... It's not based on our obedience. It's based on Christ's obedience. And we receive it by faith. And it's totally different because it's based on grace instead of merit. So the Old Testament was, if you do all the good, if you do everything, if you obey, if you do the right thing, then you're going to be accepted. And if you don't, here's the consequences. The New Testament is, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And you haven't. But you can receive it as a free gift by grace through trusting him not in earning it yourself. So it's based on faith, not on works. So we could summarize it to say the old covenant was a covenant of works. The new covenant is one of faith in Christ. The old covenant was based on their performance. The new covenant is based on Christ's performance. Okay? So let's look at some of the verses here. Let's just jump into the New Testament here and look at some of the contrasts. If you want to just keep your finger in Nehemiah because we're going to turn back there but let's look in Galatians really quick we'll look at chapter 3 and then we'll jump to chapter 5 while you're turning there I'll just say there are a lot of hints about faith and grace and even explicit statements about forgiveness and, and things like that in the Old Testament as well um but the Old Covenant specifically was, was a one of works. So let's read in Galatians 3. Let's just read this. It's kind of a longer section, but it really summarizes this well, better than I can, um, obviously because it's Scripture. So Galatians three seventeen, starting in 17. 
This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So this, this particular part is talking about how even Abraham was promised something by faith. Let's keep reading. 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies there's more than one, but God is one. 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So let's pause right there. Just that's an important verse to note, that if there was a law that could have given, given righteousness, there wouldn't be a need for a new covenant. 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, there, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has, that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So one thing I want you to notice about this whole section is the way it's describing the old covenant. You're, you're basically in bondage. You know, you're captive. You're held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So basically, it's kind of a summary of the whole Old Testament. Is God gave them the laws, and they over and over and over committed, we're going to follow it, we're going to do what you said, and then they fail. And then they come back, and they, they repent, and they say, we're sorry. Uh, you know, and they sacrifice and they commit again, and they fail, and they commit again, and they fail. They commit again, and they fail, and over and over and over and over. And you see that they never succeeded. You know, they were never able to actually fulfill the law. And that was the whole point, is to show us and them that we need an outside righteousness. We need, to be, we need forgiveness. We need to be changed, that we can't just be good enough. We can't, we can't earn our way by law-keeping. And it's really amazing, really, if you think about it, you know, God works all things together for good. And what we really, really needed was like more than a thousand years of people trying and failing over and over and over to really get it in our heads. Like, we can't do it. We're not the exception. We're not the generation that finally does it. We're not going to be able to do it. And that's really the the Old Testament. It's amazing here that Nehemiah, uh, you know, chapter 10, they commit and chapter 13, which it doesn't say how many years pass, but there's a max because of, the, because of the king who was king during the time he came back. So it was less than 10 years, but it could have been up to that, that many years, um, and they're not doing what they promised, even though they called a curse on themselves. It's a really discouraging. I mean, it's a really discouraging um, picture of the people of God, and the reason it's discouraging is it's discouraging us from trying to earn our way by works. That's what it's trying to discourage us from. It's like you're not going to be good enough. You're not going to be able to keep all the rules. You're not going to be able to earn your way to heaven. Uh, you're never going to be able to do it. Not, not only you, look at your own life, but look at all the thousands of years of, of church history of the people of God, the, of Israel, not being able to fulfill the law. And you're not going to be the exception. And, you, um, and so Nehemiah it really ends on a sad note. But the point is to point us forward, to look forward, like it says, until 
It was our, it's our guardian. We're held captive, imprisoned until Christ comes. And we see, wow, there's freedom. There's forgiveness. It's not based on my performance. I can be saved through, through forgiveness and grace and faith in Christ. And so that's really what, to kind of summarize, I'm summarizing a lot of what's going on here in Galatians in like real brief, but I'll just read directly from Galatians 5. For freedom, if you want to turn there, this is 5.1, uh, but I'll, I'll just read it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So the Bible is really, really clear here. One, that the New Testament provides freedom, um, and Christ is the one that sets us free. And that we can't combine the two. We can't go, I'm saved by Jesus and by my good deeds and my law keeping. It's one or the other. And there's a verse in Romans that's very similar to this. It says, if, if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And we've talked about this before, but I'll, it's worth reviewing again. You know, the word grace is even translated gift sometimes. Um, there's multiple words for gift but in Greek, but the word grace is sometimes translated gift. And it makes perfect sense of this, you know, that verse. If it's a gift, it's no longer by works. Otherwise, a gift would not be a gift. And I've used this example, but again, I think it's helpful, is if I said, hey, I want to give you these. It's a free gift. You know, you can look over these notes afterwards, or, you know, I spent a long time working on them. It's a free gift. All you have to do is stick around here for a couple hours afterwards and help me clean up. Is that a free gift? No, it's not a gift. You're earning it, right? And it's the same with God. If somebody says to you, yeah, you can be saved by grace. First, you just have to do this and, you know, confess your sins this way and then go and, you know, do these things and clean up your life. And then, and then you can, you know, uh, do this and that. And, and then they get through this list of however many. And by the time they're to the, to the end, it's not a gift anymore. It's not grace anymore. And that's what God is trying to teach us here in the Old Testament. And that's why there's so much time devoted to the law to Israel and to their failures is to point us like we cannot deceive ourselves. There's no reason for us to begin to believe I'm the one that's going to figure it out and I'm the one that's going to earn my way. It's like, no, we're not. We need forgiveness. We need Jesus. And the second piece of the Old Covenant that's really clear is that we need more than just information, right? They knew. God set out all the things. This is the way I want you to live. This will protect you. Um, this is the way I'm asking you to walk. And they knew it. And they, their problem was more than just one of information, right? They knew what they should do, but they needed a new heart. And that's one of the other promises of the new covenant. is not just that we'll be forgiven, but as we're forgiven, as we trust Christ through faith, that we're made new. We've got a new heart. Um, not just new information, not just here's what you need to do, but now you've got a heart that wants to follow Jesus. And that's totally different. So we've got the new and the old covenant kind of in view here. And all that is just to set the stage of, okay, how do we apply this to our lives? Okay, Because um, we kind of need all that in the background. How do we apply that to our lives? Well, first, 
I want to notice that there are some similarities in the New Testament. There are times, now I'm not saying this is a one-to-one -one correlation because there is kind of a danger here that um, if you say this thing in the Old Testament is exactly this thing in the New Testament, that can lead you astray. So baptism or um, baptism and circumcision is a good example. Um, a lot of people say that's one-to-one, and so then they do all these strange things with baptism that basically don't appear anywhere in the New Testament, like baptizing babies who don't believe, haven't believed. Um, so I'm not saying it's a one-to-one, -one, but I'm saying there is a similarity um, between this passage and what happens at baptism. There's a public declaration of repent repentance and a commitment to follow the Lord. You're saying publicly, I want to follow the Lord. And so... I'm going to read you a couple of verses on it, just New Testament. Um, this is from Acts. And I'll tell you where it is. Uh, it's in Acts 19, 4 to 5. But I'm going to go through quite a few so you don't, don't feel like you have to turn there. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The reason I wanted to read that particular one is it was a baptism of repentance. This is from Luke. This is particularly about John baptizing. He said, this is John, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. The reason I wanted to bring that up is, baptism, when they came to be baptized, uh, they were saying, I've repented. I was, walk I was going this way, I was going away from God, and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to follow God. I want to be different. I want to go forward in a totally different direction. And John said to him, if you don't really mean it, I'm not going to baptize you. Like, this is for repentance. You should have already repented. Um, so it's really clear there that repentance precedes baptism. And the ba baptism is just kind of an outward symbol. It doesn't actually cause repentance. Um, it doesn't actually wash away your sins. It's a declaration that you've already repented, um, that your sins have already been washed. I'm going to read one more passage on baptism. This passage compares it to the Old Testament here. This might be where some people, why they think circumcision and baptism are one-to-one -one correlation. Um, but, yeah, it's a bit, it's always a good rule not to base any real strong um, doctrine on one verse, especially if it's not super clear, um, just in general. So I'm going to read you from Colossians 2, 11 to 14. It says, in him, Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcisionary flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there it's kind of bringing out the idea, well, you can see why some people would put baptism and circumcision one-to-one -one there. Um, 
but again, you don't want to base a huge, a huge doctrine on um, a verse that's not. It could have multiple interpretations there. But, anyways, what it is saying is that one of the things baptism is symbolizing is your your old life is dead. It's like uh, this is the way I was, and that's gone now. And I have a new life, and that's found in Jesus. I have a new life in Jesus. And so you can see how there is some similarities here, that we do have a public declaration. Look, I've repented. I was like this, and I don't want that anymore. I'm turning to God. I'm trusting him, and I'm going forward. And I want, I want to obey him, and I'm, I want to share that publicly. And so one reason that's important is, well, it's okay to make a commitment to God. Um, that That's what, in one way, conversion is. You're saying, look, from here on out, I want to trust Jesus. I want to li- live for you. And you're really declaring that in baptism, that that's happened and that you want to follow him going forward. But there's, of course, a lot of distinctions. And this is where I want to begin to apply this to our lives, Okay. So just think about the blessings that we have in the New Covenant. Okay, Compare what we do, what we have in Christ in the New Covenant, in forgiveness and saying, I want to follow you, compared to what's going on here in chapter 10 in the Old Covenant. Can you imagine if when we baptize someone, we read a list of curses if they sinned afterwards? Think about that. That would be horrifying. Think about if it was a long list, 68 verses of curses. That would be terrifying. Anybody want to sign up for that? Be baptized, you know, commit your life to Christ, and here's all the stuff that's going to happen if you, if you turn back. Um, that'd be t- scary. Instead, what we say is, look, I'm wanting to follow you, Jesus, but, and when I sin going forward, I have forgiveness in you, in your blood, and you'll be with me. Um, it's very encouraging. Whereas in the Old Testament, they had hints, things like God specifically says, uh, you know, when he talks to Moses about who he is, he specifically says, the Lord, he declares his name, remember, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So you see there, um, you know, the idea that God will forgive, that he's He's loving. Um, there's other there's other passages. I'll read you a couple more here. Um, I'm going to read that one word for word so I make sure I get it right. Uh, this is from Exodus 34. This is when God passed before Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that's encouraging. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third generation. So you see, on one hand, you see the forgiveness. There's forgiveness. On the other hand, um, they're not sure exactly. We don't know until Jesus how exactly that's going to work out. Um, And they certainly... They certainly need... We needed the new covenant, just like we read about in, in Galatians. So... One thing we can do in, in applying this to our lives is just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that we have grace. That we want to commit, God, I want to follow you every day. And when I fail, Jesus is still there. His blood is still there to cover our sins. 
Um, we can come back for forgiveness. We can trust him every day. And it raises a question, you know. I mean, this whole passage, it's like, why did they make this commitment? Knowing, like, man, did they really think they, they were going to be the first ones who, who got all the way through and, and, and didn't turn back at all? It's like, no. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what they thought. Um, but we don't even have to worry about it. You know, we don't have to worry about it as believers in the new covenant because we know there is a place we can run when we fail, even as believers. Run back to Jesus. So as we commit, just like they're committing, we say, I'm, I don't want to live for sin anymore. I want to know God. I want to walk with God. There's verses. There's somewhere we can run. I'll read you a couple. Here's one from the Old Testament. I wonder if this was an ever an encouragement to believers in the, in the Old Covenant, kind of a hint at um, God, even though he's going to punish them, that he'll come back and he'll draw them, draw them in again. Uh, Psalm 37, 23 and 24. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Even if he trips, he will not fall headlong, for the Lord holds his hand. That's encouraging. I mean, there's a lot of things like that in the Old Testament where it's like, you get the hints of what the new covenant's going to be like, but it's not as full and as clear as what the law is really is, is laying out. Probably just to leave it for Jesus. Um, that they weren't, they couldn't have understood it without seeing and knowing him and who he is. There's a New Testament example, a couple examples like that. Um, let's just look at these two. This is probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about. 1 John 2, 1, if you want to turn there. First John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's, it's very similar in many ways to Psalm 37, saying it a little differently, though it's specifically applying it to Jesus. It's like, I don't want you to trip and fall, God is saying. I don't want you to fall into sin. But when you do, I'm going to be there to help you, uh, to pull you up, uh, that you'll still have an advocate. You'll have someone there who you can confess your sin to, who who will help you um, go forward. And it's something encouraging, something we can lean on. You know, as if you're a believer here, and you've been baptized, um, and even if, you know, that was many years ago, think about all the times that you've had to come back since then. You know, it's like, and confess daily your sins. I, I've fallen short. Um, praise the Lord that we're able to do that. Praise the Lord that he's right there with us holding our hand, that we have an advocate if we do sin. There's another verse similar, kind of similar to this. Um, in Jude, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Which is talking about God there. God's able to keep us, to hold us all the way to the end. And that's really what highlights the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. This commitment in Nehemiah 10 is commitment about them and their works and their will and their deeds going forward. And the New Testament the new covenant is a commitment that God will keep us, that he's able, 
that he'll wash away our sins, he'll give us a new heart, and he'll bring us on to the end if we trust him. And he's able to do that. That's encouraging. Inside and outside. Forgiveness on the outside and internal help by the Spirit. So this is it's kind of a sh- hard message because I'm kind of trying to summarize a lot and, and it's, it's complicated, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And there's a lot of hints of things in the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant, hinting towards the New, the new Covenant. But let's kind of try and simplify all that we just said. I'm just going to say the same thing again, except I'm going to circle back around and simplify it. So hopefully, even like kids, you'll be able to understand this. We've got, we've got a commitment to follow God. They committed to follow God. But then we see that they failed uh, in chapter 13. So how do we apply that in our lives? Well, one, it's a good thing to see that you're walking in sin and to turn and to say, I don't want, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live far from God. I want to live for God and with God. That's a good thing. Um, and if you haven't done that, if you're still walking in sins, like, I don't really want to know God day to day. I don't really want to walk with God day to day. I just want to do my own thing. It's a good thing to turn, to repent, and say, I don't want to go that direction anymore. I want to know God. I want to walk with God. And you can do that. You can do that today. And you can ask the Lord to help you. God, help me. Help me to want to follow you. And as believers, and the, they didn't do this here, but as believers in the, in the new covenant, we actually, if you do that, we show that. We show that we're trusting Jesus, that we used to be this way and now we're different, we're new. We died and now we're alive. And we want to tell everyone, I'm committing to follow Jesus and I want everybody to know that Jesus washed away my sins. And the old life is gone, I've got a new life, and that's empowered by him and leaning on him. And that's through baptism that we're showing that. And so in many ways, we do this a similar, not identical, but a similar thing of public commitment and a public confession of sin and showing repentance and faith. Um, and that's baptism. Um, and then we do a similar thing in the Lord's Supper repeatedly, kind of the ongoing partaking, showing that we're trusting Jesus' blood and body to wash away our sins. And so if you are saying, I want to follow Jesus, um, one thing he's asked you to do to obey him is to be baptized and to show and to say, look, I want to follow Jesus and this is what's happened to me and I want to go forward with that. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again, right? In fact, you're going to sin again and again and again. But unlike the old covenant here where uh, there's all these curses that come upon you, the new covenant, there's Jesus there with you And he's asking you simply to run to him and ask for forgiveness again and again and again and that he will wash those sins away. So as you're, if you say, you know, I want to be baptized, I want to say that I'm following Jesus, that he's washed away my sins, you're not saying I'm never going to sin again. All you're saying is he's washed away my sins and I believe he's going to and I'm going to continue trusting him. And you might even have that verse as a prayer. Um, 1 John 2, God... I don't want to sin. But when I do, would you be an advocate for me? And would you help me? Forgive me. 
And he will, because he promised to there. So what do we do? Well, we lean on God to help us, both with our past and our future sins, our present sins. We lean on God to help us. He has promised to help us by his spirit. So another thing that's different, if you're wanting to follow Jesus, is that you can have hope. You, you, you read this and you don't have to think, man, this is going to be really hard. You can think, wow, God promised to put his Holy Spirit within me to help me to go on forward from here. That's encouraging. That you're not going to, it's not something you're doing alone. It's not something you're committing. I'm going to follow Jesus all on my strength. It's just the opposite. You're saying, I can't, I couldn't do it. But God said he would indwell me with his spirit. He would give me a new a heart. And even when I stumble and fall, he'll be there lifting me up. And so we can lean on God by his spirit, by, by faith in him, in Christ, in his blood, and be helped by his spirit. We come to God, confess our failures, and move forward and lean on God when we fail. Faith, to begin with, I'm going to trust, I want to trust God. I want to go on from this way to this way. I, I don't want to live for sin anymore. I want to live for God. And as we go forward, faith when we fail. God, I'm still trusting you to wash away my sin. I still, tomorrow, want to walk with you. And I want to live for you tomorrow, even though I failed today. And you move forward and you move forward that way. So, just something to think about. I mean, if there might be multiple places people are at. Maybe you're not following Jesus and you need to repent and just turn from your sins, confess your sins. Maybe you're like the Old Testament believers here in Nehemiah 10 where you knew the right answers, you knew what you ought to do, and you just didn't really want to do it. You just, it's like, well, I know what I should be doing, but I'm not really interested in doing that. I want to go my own way. Or maybe you are wanting to follow Jesus. Maybe you have, you know, committed all your sins to him in faith, and you haven't followed his command in baptism. And that's one of the things you need to do, is just step out and say, God asked me to do this, and I want to do it. Um, I want to say that I have trusted Jesus, and my sins are washed away, and I want everyone to know that, um, that I'm following him and um, trusting him today and this far forward. Or maybe you've done both those things, and you just need a reminder that the new covenant isn't dependent on your performance. That every day you fall short is every single day you've got Jesus right there to help you. And you can trust him. And it's an encouragement. You can ask him, help me by, by your spirit tomorrow to be more and more like you. And we, in all these things, we can just thank him and worship him and ask for help where we are. Whatever stage we're at, um, we can just say, God, please help me going forward. So, kind of a large overview, kind of really of the whole Bible there, and the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. But I pray that just would encourage your heart, and you would go forward uh, trusting Jesus, where you are today, tomorrow, and every day. So let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful that you didn't leave us to try and um, earn our way uh, by works, because we couldn't do it, and we would have failed, and we're thankful for grace, for forgiveness, thankful for you, Jesus, uh, dying on the cross for our sins. I pray you'd help us to walk in faith. I pray you'd help each one of us to know how you want us to apply this in our lives. Uh, I pray if anything was confusing, especially to the kids, that they would just be able to hold on to um, 
the things that are really clear and basic. Thank you so much for giving us new hearts, uh, promising help every day, promising forgiveness that you'll be with us. And so we're just coming to you um, and saying we're imperfect, we're, we fail every day, but we're looking to you for help every single day and forgiveness. And we do want to move forward. Pray you'd help us not to sin. Uh, we don't want to sin tomorrow and this week. Uh, we don't want any more sin in our life. Uh, but when we do sin and when we fall short, would you be near to us and forgive us and help us just to run to you quickly and with faith um, every day. We do pray for our kids, and I just pray that you'd save kids in this church and that they would know you and love you and grow up following you. Um, we just hand that to you. Amen. Any questions or comments? Before we close? All right, we're dismissed.